Hey, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> How about that rain this morning, and yesterday, and the day before that, and hopefully tomorrow, and for uh, many months to come? <laughs> that was, that's been nice to wake up to this, this week. God is, God is very faithful and kind. I uh, wanted to uh, just share, before we get into the text this morning, just some fun and exciting things that are happening uh, in the life of the church. As you may know, our church has a desire uh, and has long had a desire to bring the gospel where it is not known and where it is not gone. And that's something that's really been a part of this church uh, from the very beginning, uh, before Santa Barbara Church was planted, uh, back in the Carpinteria days, God has placed within our DNA as a church a sense of mission uh, to bring the light of Jesus Christ to the darkest places in the world. We love doing that. We love that calling. Uh, and over this last year, as I've shared from time to time during this, this past year, we, along with uh, Reality Carpinteria and Reality Ventura, uh, have begun to focus our global resources on reaching the unreached and unengaged uh, people in the world. And one of, these, uh, one of these areas that we believe God may be leading us to specifically is the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and so that's made up of a, a few countries, uh, Oman, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and uh, Bahrain, and Kuwait, to name a few. And we are continuing to discern whether God is calling us to that region, if so, in what capacity. Um, and in doing so, I'm going to actually be heading there uh, this week with a couple, a married couple from this church, uh, who has this area on their hearts uh, as a scout trip. Uh, and uh, we'll be visiting a couple, maybe one or two, maybe three of those countries I mentioned. I can't tell you which ones because of security reasons. Uh, really fun. That's where we're going. And I can't tell you where, but, you know, there's six, and we're going to, like, half of them. So, you know, uh, you do the math. But we're going to build relationships in the area to better understand the context, the region, to pray and to gain insight uh, into how and if uh, the Lord may be leading us as a church to invest in that part of the world. Really exciting. And because we want to really follow the Lord, uh, we're praying, and we would love to you know, invite you to pray with us along those lines, not only for our trip, but also that God would help us in the discernment process uh, by either opening doors of opportunity or closing those doors, and pray also that God would give us vision and unction for this. Our hope and our prayer is that God would release a team next year, God willing, from our church to this very region. Um, and so we, we want to be on Christ's page. We want to be following him. So pr- please pray for this uh, to well up and to be made clear. Uh, and as you pray for the trip this week, some of you might even be feeling God stirring up in your heart uh, to be a part of mission uh, to the unreached in a greater way. Maybe he's stirring in your heart or will stir in your heart uh, uh, a desire to pray for that region or to support the work in that region or even for yourselves to go uh, uh, on mission to those regions. And our, our mission staff, if, if that's something that is stirring up in you, we have a mission staff who would love to talk to you. They are out in the foyer, available at the missions table to talk to you after church uh, about our heart for the unreached. And so that's that. That's what's happening this week. I will not be here the following Sunday, but in my stead, preaching behind this podium, is none other than the legend. Alan Pugh, who coordinates, see, legend. <laughs> Sorry, he does not like that I'm doing this right now. But I'm a preacher, I build things up. Sorry, Alan. Alan, Alan Pugh has been a part of this church for a long time. He's uh, obviously a home group leader, but he also coordinates our home groups uh, and he brings the word of God. So he will be here next week speaking about the battle of I in Joshua chapter 1. Um, but today, in Joshua chapter 6, all hundreds of verses that it is, uh, we reach the apex. Some would think of the story of Joshua. We are in the battle of Jericho. So turn with me there to Joshua chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to read the whole chapter, so it's a pretty long one. I'm going to read all 27 verses, just so that we can get kind of a, the sweep and flow of this, this 
narrative and story. Then we'll pray, and then we'll start to dig into some of the main themes here. As you're turning there, uh, if this is your first time, we've been studying the book of Joshua, which has as its theme, very simple theme, that of stepping into God's promises. God makes promises to his people. He made promises to Israel in the form of land. He makes promises to God's people today uh, in the form of his kingdom. And this entire book is about how God delivers on his promise And our opportunity is just to step into them by faith. And so I'm praying and hoping, and I know you are too, anticipating that we as a church would step into those promises for our lives here in the wonderful city of Santa Barbara and that we could see his kingdom come to Santa Barbara as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's uh, start reading in verse 1 and we'll just take this whole chapter. author of Joshua says this. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, then when you hear the sound of that trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before them. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, and then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did this for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, ox and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two young men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house, Rahab, and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. 
But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time and said, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This is God's holy word. God, do what you want to do in our lives and in our church today. According to your word, by the power of your spirit, for the glory of the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. This is it, man. Joshua chapter 6, this is the chapter in the whole Bible that if people aren't very familiar with Joshua, they know about this one. It's Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Anyone actually remember this? Uh, if, you were, if you grew up in church, like anyone old enough to remember flannel graphs? That was like a thing for me. Yeah, you, I, I see a couple hands. Flannel graphs. We had Sunday school teachers that would teach us Bible lessons, especially from the Old Testament, with like these flannel pieces that would stick on the wall, and it was flannel, and it was really fun, and everything was so cute, and we'd, we'd do the, like the uh, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, and we even had a song for it. Anyone remember the song? Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, Jericho. <laughs> and the walls keep tumbling down, or something like that. And it was awesome. We were like five years old, and we were just in this classroom, just singing this song about Jericho, and playing with flannel graphs, and then eating our snacks, and taking a nap. It's kind of actually still what I want to do today. I wish all of my days were like that. And then I grew older, went to school, and read the rest of the chapter about all the killing, and wondered to myself, you know, why wasn't that included in the flannel graph? <laughs> why didn't we sing about that? Like, uh, my, my Sunday school teachers conveniently left that out. I'm kind of glad they did, because I was five, but... There was a kind of a different seasons in my life that I would read a story like this, right? Back when I was a kid, the Battle of Jericho was awesome and fun and exciting. And as I grow, grew older, there were parts of it that, that were disturbing and troubling. Um, you might have heard uh, some of the things that have been said about this chapter. Perhaps you have said them yourself. Maybe you don't even care. Maybe you're like, yeah, I love Joshua chapter 6. Walls came tumbling down. But maybe there's some of you in this room that are like, that's a hard chapter to read. That this, like, God did this. Perhaps you've heard some of the uh, literature from uh, the quote-unquote new atheists, uh, Rich, uh, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and uh, their ilk that would write um, things against Christianity And this chapter always makes it in the cut. And there's a caricature that's presented about this God who would do something like this, and it's something like this. And maybe this is the the image that you have of God reading a chapter like this. It's something like this, that there was this wholesale slaughter of a bunch of innocent people living in in a land, not hurting anyone, and mean old mega power Israel comes along and eradicates them all steals their land, and if that isn't shocking enough, they do it at the behest of God himself. That's kind of the caricature that's pushed out that happens in Joshua 6. Maybe you don't care. Maybe you're like, this is an exciting chapter. Teach me how it applies to my life. But maybe some of you are like, oh, it's kind of weird. I don't want to get too deep into this, but I do want to address, before we start, some of those issues just very briefly, that this event is probably not what you thought. It's definitely not the caricature that is often presented to beat down Christianity and the character of God. It's probably not what you think. Maybe what you think is that Israel came along and they swept into this innocent city with thousands of people and they just uh, murdered everyone in the city and took their land because God is, is kind of like that. I just want to throw out a few things. I can't address this in depth, but just a few things, hopefully to relay your anxiety. One is, these were not non-combatants. Perhaps in your mind you're thinking, this is just a bunch of innocent bystanders and civilians 
and Israel is just wiping them out. One, they weren't non-combatants. Jericho was a known military outpost, okay? This is the military. This is a bunch of warriors set there to withstand uh, other military. These are not civilians. You may uh, notice in one of the verses that it actually says in verse 21, they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkeys even, to the edge of the sword. And you're like, that sounds like, that doesn't sound like military. Donkeys? This is something uh, that's often, that's kind of common to this age, the ancient Near East, but uh, historians in the ancient Near East used to brag about their exploits, and they would typically do it by using sweeping language and exaggerated language just like this. They eradicated everybody. They destroyed everybody. They committed everybody to the sword. They destroyed all the oxen and all the people and all the children and all the women and all the men. This is typical language. You understand how this type of language works if you follow sports, right? And a journalist says something or uh, uh, an article or a commentator says something to this effect, such and such team completely annihilated the other team. They devoured them. And you're like, did they actually eat them literally? No, they didn't. This is just typical language in sports, and we understand that. If you understand that, you understand ancient Near Eastern war rhetoric that was typical of bragging in that day. There weren't civilians in Jericho. In fact, there weren't lots of people in Jericho to begin with. You might think of Jericho as millions or even thousands of people. But just to give you an idea of Jericho, Jericho, you can actually go there today if you're in Israel and drive by on a bus and check out the ruins of Jericho. Jericho is about 738 feet wide, okay? That's about two city blocks. So if you want to put it into something uh, that you can imagine if you start from this theater and go all the way down to where the uh, little track is at this school. That's about how big the city of Jericho was. This isn't like the city of Santa Barbara that we're talking about, millions or thousands of people. This is about two blocks wide, and scholars and archaeologists estimate that there were, estimate that there were probably less than 100 people in Jericho. So less than 100 people in a small military outpost, no civilians, Okay? You may say, well, even if that is the case, like why would, why would God command Israel to just wipe them off the face of the earth? They're not hurting anybody. The truth is, these were not innocent people. Canaan is spoken a lot of, not only in the Bible, but in contemporary literature of the Bible. The Canaanites were pretty wild. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 18, God says to his people, to Israel, I want you to separate yourself from the surrounding nations. I don't want you to be like them. And he lists a number of things. And he's speaking specifically about the Canaanites. He says things like, please do not sacrifice your children to the god Molech. Okay? Please do not uh, engage in temple sex or bestiality, bloodlust, violence. This was the whole package of Canaan. This was a brutal, evil regime. In fact, they would go on later to be the founders of Babylon, uh, that evil empire that would subject all of the known world uh, to cruelty and injustice, these invaders of the Garden of Eden. So this is not a bunch of cute beach town college folk hanging out at Santa Barbara, minding their own business, being taken over by the big bad nation of Israel. This is uh, this is far different. And yet, even, even in the midst of this, God always provides a merciful way out. He must judge evil, but he always provides a way out. Even from Genesis, he has been offering, uh, he has been stating, my plan, my promise is extended to the nations that have not heard yet of me. And even all the way back in Genesis 15, verse 16, God says, I am waiting right now, if I can rephrase it, until Canaan, until the the people of Canaan have filled up on their level of sin. All the way back in Genesis, God is basically saying they keep sinning and keep sinning, but I am waiting until they have filled themselves to the brim brim with sin. This is a merciful, patient God. I'm reminded of the Apostle Peter who would one day say, God is not slow as we count slowness, but he is patient. Why doesn't God judge evil people right now? Because he is patient. 
not wanting anybody to perish, even evil Canaanites, but wanting everybody to come to everlasting life through repentance. And so he waits, and he's been waiting from, uh, since Genesis. That's 430 years from Genesis to where we are right now. He's been waiting for centuries for Canaan to repent. And actually, some of them do. Rahab, the prostitute, says, uh, we saw this in a couple chapters earlier, I see your God, that's the one true God, the almighty God, I want a piece of that, right? And so they spare her life. In chapter 9, we're going to see that the Gibeonites actually uh, get introduced into the covenant relationship bond of Israel, and they do it by some pretty deceptive means, but God is like, yeah, I'll take you too. Anyone who wants a piece of the, the almighty God, Yahweh, I'll take all of you. So this is not that caricature that's often presented. This isn't a wholesale massacre of a bunch of innocent people by a powerful nation bent on stealing land. This is a a righteous act of God against a small but very brutal military that had been given centuries to repent but continues to oppress the land and to oppress God's Eden. So this maybe isn't what you might think. It's also not normative, right? We don't, we don't do what Joshua is doing here today. Uh, the reason, the simple reason, is Israel was a theocracy. And there are no more theocracies today. So that means, you know, when, when Jesus came, he changed everything, including the way that we do battle, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, but if you have any questions about this, come speak to me after. But just wanted to give you an idea of what's going on here. You may say, well, if this event isn't normative for us today, then why are we studying it? And the reason is because the principles of God's kingdom that undergird the battle of Jericho are still here, and they're still for us today, and we can still understand them and apply them to our life. And the best way to approach the battle of Jericho in this text is to back up and start with a wide-angle view of God's plan that started in the Garden of Eden. Going all the way back to Eden. See, this isn't just about a piece of land in Canaan. This is about the blessing. This is about God's desire from day one to, to bless the land and to bless the people in the land and to expand that blessing all over the face of the earth. That was the original intent of the Garden of Eden and that's what God commissioned Adam and Eve to do. He said, this is your place, this is my people, this is my rule and my blessing. Now I want you to take everything that I've given you and expand it across the face of the earth so that my kingdom covers it all. We all know how the story goes. They failed to do that, but God's purpose has not failed. Hence, the book of Joshua and Canaan, which you can think of Canaan as a poaching of God's land, a poaching of the Garden of Eden. It's that parallel thought of uh, evil and violence and injustice, using God's things and using his space and using his people uh, for violence and injustice and selfish gain. And so when we see the book of uh, Joshua chapter 6 and the fall of Jericho, what we're looking at is God's plan really to restore the Garden of Eden and to fill the Garden of Eden once again. And not only to restore and to fill it, but to extend the Garden of Eden. That's really what I want to talk about just for the next 20 or 25 minutes. God's plan to restore Eden, God's plan to fill Eden, and God's plan to extend Eden, and what that means for his people today. So here's what I mean by that. In the first two verses, this is where I'm getting God's plan to restore Eden. When I speak of Eden, right, it started in the Garden of Eden, God's people in his place experiencing his blessing and his rule, the New Testament will later just call that his kingdom. So it's kind of the same thing. When I'm speaking about Eden, I'm speaking about God's kingdom, about how God wants things to be. It started there, it's expanding uh, from there, and we're in the middle of it now, and this is a vignette of that. And what we see in the Battle of Jericho is God's plan to restore that, to uh, restore what the enemy has taken to put the pieces back together. And I love how this chapter starts off in verse one. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. This should immediately open our eyes to see from a, a wide-angle standpoint of the enemy's view of God's great power. 
The hearts of the enemy of God melt like wax before him. Before Israel did anything, good or bad, God's enemies are melting behind walls. This is how the battle of Jericho starts. Joshua did nothing yet. And yet God's enemies are trembling. This should tell us that in the spiritual realm, this isn't like an equally uh, set up battle between good forces and evil forces. And God is just hoping that he can win. You know, he's hoping like, gosh, I hope the church gets their act together because I really got to win this thing. I got to put some points on the board. God won. His victory is secure. We're just waiting for it to come into the present. And for us to see it in the future, there is no competition between God and the devil. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. This is the picture you should have of your spiritual enemy, cowering before the power of the risen Christ trembling in their boots. And if Christ is in you right now today, then you should also have this in mind, that the same devil who cowers at the feet of Jesus Christ also shakes in his boots over God's people. Do you know that? That the devil trembles at people who know to whom they belong. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Greater than. Satan often deceives us to be afraid of him. But he is afraid of us. And often the victory lies in us realizing that and remembering it in the midst of the battle. Satan is afraid. His time is short. He is not winning. Notice that so much of this story is about how God is bringing the victory. God is doing everything in this story. Joshua and his tribe, they have one thing, blow the trumpet. That's it. Everything from the walls going down, from the parting of the sea, from the moving from the wilderness to the right place, it's all God. And look, right here, it's no different. Jericho is under siege. The walls are shut. Everything is, uh, that's necessary is just right there. And yet Israel, this isn't like a mega power. This isn't like a strong standing military. These are a bunch of slaves, women and children, peasants and farmers that just left the wilderness. They have nothing. So even though Jericho is cowering in fear, they're behind walls and Israel can do nothing. But God is fighting this battle. Just like God fights your battles. Often all we need to do in the beginning is recognize that and go willingly where he brings the victory. Now look at the second thing that happens in these first couple of verses. God, because it's really up to God, even though, the, even though Jericho is trembling in their boots, they're still behind a wall, God must do this and he gives them a front-loaded promise. Look at what he says in verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, see? I love that. See? What are they saying? Jericho trembling behind walls. See? Some of you need to hear that from God today. See? What, Lord? I don't see anything except tragedy. Look at what he says. I have given Jericho into your hand. See? You almost hear God just chuckling to Joshua. See? I told you. Silly boy. Keep just trembling, freaking out. See? I have it all under wraps. I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. This has already happened. Before the walls fell down, it's already happened in the mind of God. These are the effects of God's promises. He makes promises to us that have already happened in his mind. That is his reality. That also should be our reality. In verse 5, I love this. It says uh, in, later on in verse 5, when they make a long blast, he's telling them this is what's going to happen. All the people shall shout with a great shout. This is on the seventh day, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. In the Hebrew, in the liter- uh, actual language, it literally says the walls will fall under itself. The author is going out of his way to describe to you that there is something. It's not that the walls are being pushed. It's not that they're exploding. It's not that someone is pushing them over or, or, or tunneling through them. They're falling falling down upon themselves under their own weight. 
This is a glimpse into a divine reality. The author is trying to at least share a little vignette that this is going to be happening by the power of the living God. Everything about this is the power of the living God. God said, before it even happened, as they're staring at the obstacle, as they're staring at the wall, got any walls in your life today? He's saying, I have already given you the blessing. I have already given you Jericho in your hand. This is already happening. God is already restoring Eden in the life of his people. I love how this happens. This actually happens all throughout the Bible. We have this saying that imperatives in Scripture flow from indicatives. An imperative is a command in the Bible. Anytime God tells you to do something, an indicative is something that is indicative of you it's, or of God. It's a truth, a reality that, that, is already, that is already true. You don't need to make it happen. It's already true. And when you read the Bible, and what you see right here is that God loves to give us imperatives, commands that flow out of indicatives, things that are already true. You actually see this all over the Apostle Paul's writing, all of his letters. He will start an entire chapter talking about how awesome God is, how Christ has defeated the enemy, how we have been redeemed, how our identities are in Christ, how we belong to the Father, our adoption, all of this stuff, things that are already true. And then later in the book, he might turn a corner and say something like this, therefore, right? Since you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for your life is hidden with Christ in God. The indicatives, things that are true, flow into what we are supposed to do. So here's the first principle. I'm going to give you three principles of the kingdom that we can get from this. Principle number one, what we do always should flow from the blessing. It is the experience of what God is doing in our lives that we have the joy and the receptivity and even the ability to obey what he's saying. Trouble happens when we get the cart before the horse, right? When we're trying to do in order to merit the blessing. When we try to do holy things in order to impress God or to be accepted by God or to be accepted by each other. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel says what we do flows out of what is already true. What we do flows out of the blessing. You know what we need to do right now is to figure out how we have been blessed in Christ. Figure out what is already true about you. That'll set you on fire. See what Paul says about your identity in Christ, what you have been rescued from, redeemed from, what no longer should have a hold over you, what you have been freed and liberated from. That's where you just start to jump in and just wade in waist deep. That will thrill your heart to want to say, I will do anything for you, God. Not because of a guilty, shameful burden, not because I'm trying to uh, find my acceptance in you, but because I love you. And for all that you have done for me, principle number one of the kingdom in Joshua, what we do flows from the blessing. Verses three through 14, if that's God's plan to restore Eden, this is God's plan to fill Eden. In other words, God isn't just a gardener. He's not just into his garden. He wants to fill his garden with people. And he did this once before, right? With Adam and Eve. And he said, I have given you everything. And it's starting right here. This is a glimpse of my kingdom. I want you to steward my blessing. And I want you to spread it across the world. All that I ask is that you stay away from my little chia pet over here, my tree. Avocado tree, probably. What's he doing right now in Joshua? He's he's giving, you know how that that, that story went down. They, They did the one thing God told them not to do. They didn't trust him. They listened to the serpent. God doesn't have my best, in t- uh, my best in mind, my welfare in mind. He doesn't care about me. He's just using me. He's not a good God. And out of that lie came a, a, a broken trust in God, and everything fell apart. What's he doing right here? He's giving his people a chance to trust him in the garden again. How? By giving him another command that makes no sense. Just like the tree. 
just don't eat this tree. Why, God? You ever ask that? Why are you telling me not to do this? Well, why that? Why is that in here? Why is this in here? Why are you telling me that? Why are the doors being closed? It doesn't make any sense. just want you to trust me. He's giving Joshua and uh, uh, the Israelites another chance, just as he continues to do today, to trust him in the midst of the garden because that's where the growth will happen. And he does it by giving them the weirdest command in military history. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, and you will do that for six days with trumpets. And then on the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times, let out a big shout, and the walls will come down. You have to put yourself in their shoes, right? Now, granted, they probably have some faith kindling in their heart at this point because they've already seen God part the Red Sea. But have you noticed God keeps doing stuff like this? Where he puts them right up against the wall, against the thing that they fear the most, gives them a silly command that kind of, kind of stresses how weak they are in the face of that, that adversary and that obstacle, and he, and he lets them trust him for a couple days. He did this at the river, at the Jordan River. He tells the priests, I want you to get into the water until you're ankle deep and just, just chill, and I'll part it. You can imagine as the water is creeping up to your ankles, you're just, maybe on day one, you're like, this is going to be great. God's going to move this river. Day two, you're like, I really hope he does it. And day three, you're like, this is not good. He does the same thing here. God's people are charging, but you could imagine after day six, maybe you've had a day six in your life, where you're like, I know what God said he was going to do, I feel that, that passion in my heart that he's going to move. I see what he promises in scripture, but day six, like he hasn't done it yet. Is he really going to? Is God really good? Did he forget about me? Maybe you're asking that today. Did he forget about me? Is he just messing with me? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 30 says that it was by faith that the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. It was that little mustard seed of faith in Israel's trust after day six. Hey, this doesn't make any sense, but I know that God is going to move. And as silly as this sounds, their little shout on day seven after circling the building for seven days seems to be the most active thing that they did. They never pulled out a sword up until this point. They never tried to climb the walls. They didn't bring a battering ram. They didn't throw out insults to their enemy. The loudest thing that they did up until this point was a shout. I love this. Because it tells us that in the midst of our waiting, we are not being inactive. This isn't inactivity. This is faith in God. This is their participation in what God is doing. It was by faith that the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. It was the shout of Israel that crystallized in their hearts. We do believe that God is moving and that he will tear this wall down. God wants to fill the garden with men and women who trust him for great things. Who understand that what he calls them to do flows out of who they are in him, out of the blessing. Lastly, God plans to restore his kingdom, the Garden of Eden. He plans to fill it with people who trust him for big things. But he doesn't just plan on keeping a little garden in his backyard. He does plan, just like he said in Genesis, to extend that garden over the face of the earth. Notice in verse 15 through 21, they do it, and there's been so much buildup that the actual event is just really quick. The walls fall down. They circle it seven days. Walls fall down. And all that those walls symbolize, the rebellion of humanity falls down with it. There's a redemption in the midst of the battle where God plucks out of Canaan those who are repentant, Rahab and her entire family. And then Joshua does something as after they, they, they burn the city, they destroy it. 
and all that it has come to symbolize, the rebellion of the human heart, injustice, evil, suffering, a glimpse into what life will one day be when Jesus Christ comes back again. And Joshua pronounces a curse on Canaan. Look at what he says in verse 26. He laid on an oath on them at this time, saying, curse before the Lord, be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. And it sounds pretty harsh, right? Okay, killed everybody, you burned the city down. Now you're cursing it for generations to come. But again, you have to, you have to back up and see the plan and what Canaan symbolized for that plan. Rebellion, evil, hurt, pain. God isn't cursing people here so much as he is cursing the curse. One author, Joshua Ryan Butler, uh, uh, writing about this comments, I I love how he put this. I'm just going to quote him. He just says, God is way less harsh and way more patient than the caricature would lead us to believe. Canaan's brutal empire is being evicted from Eden once and for all. In other words, God right here, the picture that we see here is God putting a stop to the evil and injustice and suffering in this little vignette of history. And in it we see God's kingdom actually advancing. Now we want to be careful when we talk about the kingdom and Joshua. So much evil can actually be perpetrated, perpetuated, one of those, both of those. I'll take them both. By applying what happened to Joshua to our own lives, right? You remember the Crusades? No, you don't. None of us were alive. But still it's ingrained upon our memory. One of the greatest obstacles for a Christian speaking about Jesus to a Muslim is the Crusades. It never goes away. And the Crusades were a gross, distorted application of passages like Joshua chapter 6. If we want to spread God's kingdom, we need to take over, literally take over the land. It's not how it works. This is not how God spreads his kingdom today. God's kingdom is not of this world. And it is not political. And it is not violent. It's not man-made. And it doesn't come from seats of human power or authority or influence. comes from the least likely place, comes from the cross on the outside of the city of Rome. It comes from the God of power taking the seat of humility and dying for the sins of the rebellious. You believe this? It's Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, saying to rebels and heathens, I love you so much. I am going to die for your rebellion that you might seek after me and find me. The king to which all glory is due receives death for the tyrants who deserve it. And our battle in the kingdom today is not against earthly, political, social kingdoms. It's against spiritual forces of darkness. And God says to each one of us in the midst of that battle, see, they're already defeated. You take ground. You take the walls. You say, yeah, but it doesn't seem like they're defeated. It doesn't seem like God's doing anything. I look out at the world as I see it. Nothing is happening. The news gets worse. Our situations get worse. I am sad and depressed. And yet Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. Sounds very similar to what Joshua would say at the end of his book, doesn't it? Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the nation of Israel had failed. All of them came to pass. And all the promises made to you in Christ Jesus are yes. Even when they were circling the walls wondering, how in the world is this going to happen? They are already yes for God's people. If I were you, I'd start digging into this thing and start looking for promises to claim as my own. Anything that God says is reality, I'm taking it to the bank, man, and so should you. 
All of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus and none of them fail. We need to stop filling our minds with speculation and fear and what things might look like and how things might be. And we need to start aiming our eyes and the eyes of our hearts onto what God says is going to happen and belongs to us now. And may the church be shaped by that reality and not by our fears. Principle number three. From that, the blessing is coming. Principle one, what we do flows from the blessing. Principle two, persevere even when you don't see the blessing. Day six. Principle three, the blessing is coming. Stay the course. Battle today is won over spiritual darkness. It's not over cobblestone walls and military commanders. It is over principalities of darkness and rulers of the dark world who have already been defeated but who are still going to take whatever we're willing to give them. I charge this church in the name of Jesus not to give them any ground. In your workplace, in your family, in your marriage, in your personal life, in your thoughts, in your recreation, on your city street. I charge the church of Jesus Christ to stand and rise and to see what actually belongs to them in Christ. And to say, maybe for the first time for you in your entire life, Satan, you have been taking from me for years, and this is where you stop. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. What we see in this story is that same theme happening and uh, being unpacked right now. This time it was the Canaanites who had centuries and many opportunities to repent, and some of them did. Rahab, the Gibeonites. question today isn't about Canaanites and Gibeonites and Rahab. The question is, will you? What we see in the middle of all of this war and turmoil is that God is actually slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But he will not always overlook evil. He's a loving God, but he's also a holy and a just God. And he will not overlook evil and sin forever. And this might not sit well with some of you. Maybe judgment and wrath. Whenever you hear those words, you're like, ah, that doesn't sound like a loving God. But think about this in any other aspect of your life. If someone were to commit a heinous crime against a loved one in your family... Wouldn't you want justice to be served? Wouldn't you want evil to be answered? No one would turn a blind eye. And if somebody did, if a judge turned a blind eye to a heinous crime and said, you know what, no big deal, whatever, how many of us would rise up saying, that is not right? How much more do we want a just God to take care of all that is wrong in his garden and in our surrounding lives? We want him to be loving, but we also deep down want him to be holy and just and righteous too. The problem that this creates is that we are the unjust ones. We are the sinners. We are the ones who have made mistakes. We are the ones who have raised our fist in rebellion against God. So what is God to do with rebels? Well, he would be holy and just and righteous to destroy them. But instead, he sends his son on the road to destruction in one last ditch effort that rebels would throw down their weapons in worship. The God of justice has found a way to extend to you his love. Our only answer today at the battle of Jericho is to repent, to throw down our weapons, our rebellion, our different ways of viewing our life, our owner, our, our, uh, uh, that idea in our, our, li- our, our minds that our life belongs to us and the ways of Canaan and to let Eden once again spread throughout our city and in our families and in our lives and in our workplaces. But this starts with you and me. 
I'm going to ask Mike and the rest of the worship team to come up here as we, as we sing. Looking at God's plan to restore and fill and extend Eden and the promises that are ours in Christ. Maybe you're asking, what's my next step? Your next step is that it starts with you. And perhaps what you and certainly I need to do today is to ask ourselves a question. In the quietness and presence of God, ask ourselves, is there anywhere in my life where I am resisting the rule and reign of God? Any space or compartment in my life where I'm saying, mine, I'm putting up walls. Let him deal with that area today. As the book of Romans tells us, he's not here to shame you. He's not here to destroy you. He's not here to push you down. Paul said that it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance. I want to ask my brothers and sisters to join me today as we sing in opening those areas of resistance to the kindness of God and see what he does. Heavenly Father, thank you for your all-encompassing presence and the promise of your presence today. We ask that as we as we come before you you would do a heart work in us right now. For those who have never known you in this way, we pray that for the first time our weapons would fall to the side. We would kneel and surrender our allegiance to you. For those who are already believers and Christians and followers of Christ, may you show us, as the psalmist said, Psalm 139, as, as David would, would, would express, is there, you know, examine me, Lord. Show me if there's any wayward way within me. of Eden flourish.